Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. And we are with the Benefits Compliance team with NFP, and we are going to look at some issues today that are related to the end of year for employer plans, things that should be addressed from a compliance perspective. And then we're going to peek into 2021 for the beginning of the year items that need to be addressed quickly by employers. So Chase, let's start off with this list. Yeah, it's the end of 2020 finally, right? So it feels like a long year, but we're here and um, there's, we're going to break this into kind of two things for the end of the year for employers that are end of year compliance laundry list. There are compliance obligations at the end of the calendar year. And then there are compliance obligations at the end of the plan year. Um, those obligations at the end of the calendar year, those are going to apply regardless of the plan year start date. So we'll address those first, and then we'll also address quickly compliance obligations that arise in December for calendar year plan years. In other words, those that start on January 1st each year, since that's kind of the majority of the plans. Uh, But regardless of your plan year start date, the end of the calendar year brings two requirements, both related to imputed income. Um, Those are imputed income for domestic partner coverage and imputed income for group term life coverage. Uh, The basic idea on an imputed income is that the employer has provided some benefit to the employee that is not necessarily allowed to be provided on a tax advantage basis. That means the employer can still provide it. They're just not going to get the tax advantages with it. The easiest example is actually the requirement we're going to talk about, which is domestic partner coverage. As we all know, the IRS says that the employer can provide tax advantage benefits and coverage to employees and their tax dependents. But most domestic partners, I say most because there are some exceptions, of course, but most domestic partners are not going to be considered an employee's tax dependent. So the IRS says, well, guess what? If you cover a non-tax dependent, then you have to figure out the value of that coverage Uh, going to the non-tax dependent, and then you have to add that value to the employee's taxable income. Administrative difficulties, for sure. Yes, this is an administrative challenge. Uh, There are two ways to do that sort of assignment of fair market value when figuring out the value that has to be taxed. You either use the individual COBRA rate, which would be the cost of single-only coverage. Obviously, you wouldn't include the 2% COBRA admin fee. You just say, hey, this is a single individual. We're covering them as a domestic partner through the plan. Let's just use that as the value. The other option is to use the differential rate. Uh, What's the cost difference between single and single plus one or family coverage? In other words, I'm covering my domestic partner. How much more is that costing me? That's the value. Um, So you just look at the actual cost of adding that one dependent. The differential rate doesn't work and can't be used if there's no actual differential. Like if I'm already paying the family rate and I add my domestic partner without actually having to pay more, the IRS says that the imputed income amount or the value cannot be $0. So there needs to be some dollar amount as a true value. Whatever the amount the employer determines as the value, that amount is added to the employee's income as taxable income. It's imputed as the 
rules say to the employee is income. And that needs to be done by the end of the calendar year since the employee's tax year is the calendar year. You, you mentioned um, group term life coverage. So talk to me about that. Yeah, imputed income for group term life coverage is also something that has to be done by the end of the year. And it's a similar concept, but slightly different. The IRS uh, in section 79, if you want to get technical, uh, that basically says an employer can provide up to $50,000 worth of group term life coverage on a tax advantage basis, but anything above that has to be taxed. Now, the $50,000 amount was enacted quite a while back. It's never been adjusted upwards. So um, it's probably doesn't feel like that much coverage, but the value of coverage above 50,000 is subject to imputed income. That value of the coverage above 50,000 is added to the employee's gross income and taxed exactly how we kind of said that domestic partner imputed income works. But the value, how you determine that is actually different here. The value of the coverage above 50,000 is pre-assigned by the IRS in what is called the table one rates. Table one is just a table found in the IRS rules. And that outlines the taxable dollar amount or the value based on the amount above 50,000. So there's no big issue here with determining fair market value like there is for domestic partner coverage. You just look it up in the table and it will tell you. Also, if life insurance is provided on the life of the employee's spouse or dependent, that would also result in some type of taxation, some type of imputed income. Okay, so those two imputed income issues uh, apply regardless of the plan year. Let's look at those things that apply to um, based on the plan year. So in this case, at the end of the year, we'd be talking about a calendar year plan. Yeah, so December is a busy month if you have a January 1 plan year start day. And actually, it probably goes back to November uh, because that's when most open enrollments, um, either the preparation or the actual enrollment period begins. So let's talk about that open enrollment period first. During open enrollment, certain notices have to go out. The most obvious one is the SBC. That's the Summary of Benefits and Coverage. That's usually prepared by the carrier, uh, but that needs to be included in open enrollment materials. If there are updates or changes for the new plan year relating to premiums, cost sharing, contributions, deductibles, coverage services and items, those types of benefits, then those should also be outlined in open enrollment materials and updates to the SPD. We're getting all these acronyms here, but SPD right. summary plan description, right? That's the overall summary of the plan that's supposed to go to employees. Updates have to be made there. And that can be done either by direct amendment to the SPD or through a cross-reference in the SPD meaning the SPD says that the overall SPD includes other plan-related documents, sort of incorporation by reference. Um, so that could include open enrollment materials, other documents. So where- And one point on that, we always want to make sure that if there are any, uh, if there are any changes, make sure that it isn't outlined in the SPD and that you have some, uh, some different terms being used or some, some conflicts there between documents. Yeah, consistency is hugely important, right? You don't want to be telling your employees one thing and have the plan documents or the SPDs saying another thing. So a close review of those SPDs is really an annual event that should occur. There's also a list, cur courtesy of the Department of Labor, of notices that need to go out with open enrollment materials. Those include the CHIP notice, the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act or WICRA, 
annual notice. And if the employer offers a wellness program, the notice of availability of a reasonable alternative standard. So if there's something like a smoker surcharge, you have to notify through open enrollment the, the notice of smoker cessation program in order to get the wellness reward. That's so, definitely one that trips people up. Yes, it is. And employers forget about that one. Um, it actually needs to go in any plan related material. So that one was actually beyond open enrollment. Um, but there are model notices for the chip and the WICRA notice that makes life a little bit easier. And some of these notices, sometimes the WICRA notice, especially is baked into the SPD. Uh, but those notice requirements are important uh, during open enrollment. Another uh, thing to do at the end of the plan year is to correct dependent care. If you're offering dependent care account, a DCAP or a, a dependent care FSA, those are the same thing with different names. The idea that 55% of DCAP benefits must go to non-key or non-highly compensated employees, that's problematic for employers, uh, but you can fix that by cutting off salary reductions or recharacterizing as taxable income discriminatory amounts, but you have to do that by the end of the plan year. Otherwise you get into tax consequences um, for employees and that becomes harder to report on W-2. So employers really struggle with that 55% benefits test. It's just hard to control because it depends on who actually enrolls in the dependent care and higher earners often have more discretionary income. So it's easier for them to participate and contribute. Um, so that's an important thing to look at at the end of the year, actually throughout the year, but especially at the end of the year. Lastly, employers will have to confirm their affordability calculations under the ACA's employer mandate. Those uh, amounts for the affordability, the affordability percentage change each year and, and can be adjusted at the beginning of the plan year. But you have to look at that at the uh, sort of going into the plan year upcoming. So all of those create a busy end of calendar year for plans with the January 1 start date. Lots to consider. Um, it, let's think about from a state perspective. Is there anything on a state level to consider at the end of the year? Yes, states more and more are getting into the game here. And we're, we've talked about this on past podcasts, particularly in the COVID environment. States are just getting much more active we're going to talk about some more uh, reporting requirements at the state level, but at the, uh, for next year. Uh, but for this year, for employers uh, with that, that operate or have employees in Massachusetts, uh, there is a reporting requirement called the Massachusetts Heard Reporting. That's Health Insurance Responsibility Disclosure. Employers with six or more employees who worked in Massachusetts must submit a Heard form annually. And that has to be done by December 15th, so just a week from today. Uh, the HERD form is collecting employer-level information about the employer's group health plan. And it's designed to assist the state in identifying who may be eligible for the Mass Health Premium Assistance Program. Employers are responsible, but payroll vendors can help and are allowed to file on behalf of employers. So that may be one way to go on that. The information reported is again, employer level. So you're talking about eligibility, total employer and employee costs, the benefits and coverage levels offered, in-network deductibles, out-of-pocket maximums, cost sharing. And then this last one, whether the plan meets the Massachusetts minimum essential coverage requirement. Remember, Massachusetts has the original state individual mandate going back right. to Medicare. 
2006. So um, that's part of what this herd form is for. The form is submitted through the state's tax authority, which is Mass Tax Connects. So just for those with employees in Massachusetts. So interesting question is, given the pandemic, you now may have people working at home. Have they given any uh, guidance or consideration to uh, the idea that you may have somebody working out of their home who now may, may be working in Massachusetts who didn't previously um, and uh, would that now apply to them? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this question because this is going to be a, a problem bleeding into 2021 and states more and more are putting out guidance on this issue of um, whether somebody working remote is subject to that state's laws. Um, at a very high level, this involves employment and individual tax withholding. So this is going to be something employers will want to work with their tax advisors, their CPAs, in determining the appropriate state tax consequences of continuing remote workers in different states. Um, but states have started putting out guidance on whether a remote worker in their state, even on a temporary basis, will trigger that state's withholding and income tax uh, rules. This matters like again for employment and individual tax, but it also is for state worker protections like state mandated disability, uh, state paid family and medical leave. Massachusetts has Massachusetts PFML. Um, so states refer to this as the tax nexus. And so the question becomes at what point does this remote worker trigger the tax nexus necessary to invoke state tax withholding? Um, Massachusetts has some guidance on this that basically says if you're temporarily working in Massachusetts in 2020 as a result of the pandemic, you actually don't trigger Massachusetts withholding, but only through the end of 2020. So if you remain a remote worker in Massachusetts into 2021, you are going to trigger Massachusetts withholding. So as the end of the year approaches, employers with remote workers in Massachusetts, at least, will have to consider not only the appropriate state income tax withholding for Massachusetts, but they're also going to have to start withholding Massachusetts PFML contributions. Um, so that's something to consider for sure. Other states have done different things on this, but um, we've seen a lot in the Northeast with Rhode Island, uh, Connecticut, uh, New York, New Jersey, all putting out rules saying, hey, um, you know, either we are allowing this remote work to just on a temporary basis, it won't trigger state tax consequences or the opposite, like Massachusetts is doing here in 2021. You've been here long enough. We're going to start uh, charging you state income tax, which could include these withholdings for disability or paid family leave. So this is, again, one that you, you need to go talk to a CPA or, or outside tax counsel to get the appropriate advice because it goes well beyond benefits with uh, state income tax withholding. Okay, so we talked about the end of the year um, guidance, th things that need to be accomplished. What about looking into the next plan year? So we're talking about now starting your plan year, and, and let's look at those uh, plan years that start on January one. Yeah, so uh, January 1 plan year start dates is uh, January is going to be a little bit busy. First, you have to review the cafeteria plan, health FSA if you're offering that, and dependent care accounts for non-discrimination. So we just talked a little bit about dependent care accounts and making those fixes at the end of the year. But by looking early in the year, employers can identify and get ahead of any potential favoring of highly compensated employees. Um, so this is the same thing with Section 105 non-discrimination testing. If 
the plan is self-insured, you have that additional obligation of section 105. But all of those are really just looking to see if highly compensated employees are somehow favored. And then you can make adjustments and get ahead of it uh, to make those changes to come into compliance. Also looking into February uh, for a, plan, a January one plan year start date, the Medicare Part D disclosure to CMS is due within 60 days of the plan year start date, which would be the end of February. So that one is fairly simple requirement. It's just a filing with CMS, but some employers do that in January right after the plan year starts because all the information is fresh on their mind. So let's go back now to the state level. What, uh, what does January bring from a state perspective? Yeah, so um, employers with employees in states that have enacted individual man mandates at the state level may have reporting obligations in 2021. And this is kind of a new thing, right? The, most of these states, their state individual mandates took effect in 2020. And so the reporting on that is coming online in 2021. If you have- Excuse me. And just as a reminder, this is many states enacted an individual mandate due to, at the federal level, them zeroing out the tax penalty and so effectively um, mitigating any uh, impact on, on not carrying some individual insurance. And so they certainly felt like that, that was an important feature for individuals to have some skin in the game and have uh, insurance coverage. Exactly right. So we're seeing some of the trickle down effects from parts of the ACA going away, right? Um, so if you have employees in California, Washington, DC, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island, or Vermont, you may have additional filing obligations. Most of them are just filing the same 1095C that you're filing with the IRS, and then you file that with the state. And again, ensuring that 1095C was distributed to the employee uh, but looking at the due dates for Massachusetts and Rhode Island, those due dates are January 31st, whereas in California and New Jersey, the deadline is March 31st. DC ties theirs to the IRS by saying it's 30 days after the IRS deadline. Um, so the requirements vary a little bit and also on who must file, right? For example, in California, the reporting applies only to self-insured employers um, and the form um, also might be different, namely Massachusetts, which they file a 1099-HC there. Um, in some states, the carrier can handle it. For example, New Jersey says it's okay if the carrier files the 1095-C, but the employer must ensure that it happens. And then Vermont. Vermont is always an interesting study, right? Vermont uh, has an individual mandate that began January 1, 2020, but they don't have a 1095-C filing um, due. Uh, Vermonters just report yes or no to, to that minimum essential coverage requirement on their state income tax return. But employers with five or more employees have to report on their quarterly employment tax returns. Um, they have to add this thing called the healthcare contributions worksheet, which basically is a report and a tax penalty if they have any uncovered full-time employees. And that's true even if they've offered the coverage and the employee waives. So Vermont is a little bit different there. It's almost like a, a little bit of a state uh, employer mandate. You can think of it that way. Um, so employers really need to review those state requirements. Um, what we've covered here is very high level, uh, but those continue to build at the state level. We do have a white paper that we have developed. Uh, talk to your NFP advisor if you're interested in getting that, but sort of outlines these state reporting requirements and, and what's the deal on them.
And in most cases, do the state reporting requirements apply uh, based on where an individual resides or based on where an individual works? It's generally tied to where the individual resides in this case. A lot of these um, laws like the paid leave and the disability do tie it to work location, which is why we you know, have that discussion about the tax nexus where the work is performed. In this case, it's where the employee lives. It's the state saying, you're a resident of our state, therefore you um, are subject to this requirement to carry minimum essential coverage. Great question. So Chase, is there anything else for um, employers to consider that we haven't touched on so far? Yeah, so January brings a few items on the compliance perspective, regardless of plan year. So this applies to everybody, obviously depending on size here, but most, most importantly are some employer reporting requirements. Those include the W-2 reporting requirement in the forms 1094 and 95C reporting requirements. On the W-2, this is for any employer that files 250 or more W-2s. They have to report the cost of employer-sponsored coverage on the employee's W-2, and that has to happen with the W-2, which is due January 31st each year. Most employers are used to this one now, and payroll vendors are pretty much covering it, but something to review and make sure is, is occurring. On the 1094 and 1095Cs, this is for larger employers under the ACA's employer mandate, 50 employee, uh, those with 50 employees or more. Um, they're still required to offer coverage, make it affordable for full-time employees, and they have to report on it. Two reporting requirements here, the 1094 and 95C have to be filed with the IRS, and then a copy of 1095C or a simplified statement with the same info has to be distributed to employees. That 1095C to employees is supposed to go to them by January 31st, kind of tied in with the W-2, but confusingly, the IRS changes this, it's helpful. They extend the deadlines. That's been the case every year. Um, so this year it's now March 2nd, 2021. Then 1094 and 95C must be filed with the IRS for paper filings. Um, that's any employee, employer under 250 forms can file by paper. That has to go to, uh, by sorry, the 1094 and 95C have to go to the IRS by March 1st, 2021. It's actually usually, usually February 28th, but February 28th in 2021 is a Sunday, so it bumps mm -hmm. to Monday. For electronic filings, um, the due date is March 31st. And remember, any employer with 250 or more forms must file electronically. Really four new due dates here in 2021, even though it's really only two requirements. January 31st is the W-2. March 1st is uh, the 1094 and 95 to the IRS by if you're filing by paper, March 2nd, the next day, you have to have the 1095C to employees, and then March 31st to the IRS if you're filing electronically. So while those dates may feel a ways out right now, that 1095C info can be burdensome. So employers should start gathering that information now. Great. Well, uh, that is a lot to consider and not, not something easy to remember when you're just hearing it uh, via a podcast. So Chase, you talked about some of the resources. Can you remind the audience of the resources that we can provide? Yeah. So this is a lot to keep track of. Um, we've talked, covered a lot here for uh, December and, and sort of peeking into the first few months of 2021. But we have our online compliance checklist that's available through your NFP advisor. We have compliance calendars 
These are uh, calendars that outline compliance requirements each month based on the plan year start date, including these requirements that apply regardless of plan year start date. Um, that's a great resource. We also have um, several white papers talking about the different notices that go out and how to distribute them, right? That's a big deal. Can we send them electronically? Can we send them, post them to the internet or the intranet? What does that look like? And then the last thing administratively I wanted to talk about really quickly was with respect to the pandemic and these DOL extensions on deadlines. Uh, the DOL created this new period called the outbreak period, uh, which essentially stops the deadlines from tolling uh, during the pandemic. And so if you are terminated or you lose your eligibility for coverage, for example, as a result of a furlough or a layoff, your COBRA election period is actually extended. Usually you have 60 days to do that. Under these new rules, you have um, up to 60 days after the outbreak period ends. And the outbreak period started on March 1st and is really still going. It's tied to either the White House make, uh, saying the pandemic is over or the DOL saying the rules say that it's over or up to one year, which is sort of the ERISA deadline saying this can only last for one year. So that would be sort of the end of February that this would run out. But administratively, this is a huge challenge because you have all these individuals who could potentially uh, in concept retroactively enroll in COBRA and they would have to make the premium payments for it obviously to have that. Um, but it's just creating this administrative challenge. You have to work with your COBRA vendors those extensions apply to other things too, like COBRA premium payments. If somebody didn't pay premiums, but wants to go back and retroactively pay, their coverage needs to be restored. And it also applies to HIPAA special enrollment rights. So if you had a, uh, as an employee, a, a birth of a child or you were married, and usually you have a 30 day window to enroll in the group health plan through your HIPAA special enrollment right. Now that is uh, sort of extended. So you could actually and re-enroll uh, due to that event many months later. So that's something that's really, there's not like a perfect solution to it other than you need to talk closely with your administrator and make sure that it's being communicated to employees somehow and also that, you know, administratively that can happen if that's enrolled, if, if that uh, individual needs that enrollment. Terrific. Well, Chase, thank you. This has been very timely information and, and important information. And a lot of questions that we get asked from the clients during this time about those types of issues. Um, as we go into the new year, we'll be talking uh, more uh, about some of the changes that could be occurring with the ACA and with the new administration. Um, so for now, as we like to say, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. That's a wrap. Thanks. Thanks.